Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Daniel Matt, the leading authority on Jewish mysticism, who for over 20 years served as professor of Jewish spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He's also taught at Stanford University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's published six books, actually more now, The Essential Kabbalah, Zohar, The Book of Enlightenment, Zohar, Annotated and Explained, God in the Big Bang, Discovering Harmony Between Science and Spirituality. And I must say that he took on, I think, the biggest project of his life. He is translating Kabbalah directly from Aramaic. The book that he's translating is called the Zohar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Daniel Matt to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. I'm very excited about what you're doing. And one part of me is perplexed at how you're doing two pages of Aramaic a week, translating 12 pages in English, commentary, reconstructing Aramaic. And how did you learn Aramaic? Uh, I learned Aramaic gradually, really. My father was a rabbi, and I studied uh, intensively with him. More Hebrew, I would say, the Bible and commentaries on the Bible in Hebrew. And then I began studying the, the Talmud, which is the main text of, of rabbinic Judaism, written in Aramaic. And then the Zohar I, I discovered uh, when I was about 19 years old. And uh, I really delved into that, and, and gradually over the years I've learned to make sense of it. You speak with such a calm and a poise about, really, the Jewish mysticism book. Isn't the Zohar, which means radiance and splendor, the book of Jewish mysticism? Yes, I think it'd be good to start just distinguishing between Kabbalah and Zohar. Kabbalah is the name for the overall movement of Jewish mysticism, you, you might say. Literally, Kabbalah means receiving or tradition. So it's used to describe the whole Jewish mystical tradition, from ancient roots up to modern times. But there is no book called the Kabbalah. Kabbalah, in other words, is a name for the whole philosophy of Jewish mysticism. The Zohar is the main text of the Kabbalah, and that's really how they, how they relate to one another. The way that you write, Daniel, is very poetic. And you remind me of the Sufis. You remind me of Rumi, the way you translate. Have you studied Rumi? Yes, I, I find Rumi very powerful, and it's interesting because Rumi is an exact contemporary of the author of the Zohar. They both uh, lived and wrote in the 13th century. There was certainly no direct contact between them since, because Rumi is in Turkey and the Zohar is composed in Spain. But uh, there, was, uh, there were Sufis, of course, active in Spain, and there is some Islamic influence in the Zohar, Christian and Islamic influence, although certainly it's primarily a Jewish book. And uh, Rumi is certainly, you know, one of the great poetic and mystical geniuses of all time. And the Zohar is, I think, the great poetic book of, of Kabbalah. I think what's also interesting is the way you talk about the Zohar, which is that it's also about this journey of these people, these rabbis through Galilee. It's a journey. It's a story. It's also a commentary. Right. The Zohar is really at least two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it's a commentary on the five books of Moses, on the Torah, and certain other parts of the Bible. 
but it's at the same time a kind of mystical novel. It traces the, the journeys and the wanderings, as you said, of a circle of rabbis who are wandering through the hills of Galilee, sharing secrets of Torah, running into interesting characters on the road. Uh, for example, an old donkey driver who seems to be a total idiot, but turns out to be a great master of wisdom in disguise or a little child who pesters the rabbis with seemingly foolish questions. But it turns out this little child is also uh, a real mystic sage. So it really goes back and forth between um, adventures of the rabbis on the road and their insights into different uh, parts of, of the Torah, of, of, of the five books of Moses. What do you think has caused the popularity of Kabbalah today? Um, I wonder about that a lot. It's really very interesting. When I began studying it, hardly anyone knew about it. People asked me what I did, and I said Kabbalah. No one knew what that meant. And now people on the street have heard of it because, of course, uh, the Hollywood crowd, it's become famous uh, in part because of that. I think, I think there are a couple factors. One thing that attracts people to Kabbalah is that it's, it's a unique kind of spirituality, you know, many spiritual systems demand that you that you reject the material world. They they create a sharp dichotomy between the material and the spiritual. And Kabbalah insists that uh, we integrate the spiritual and the material. That we not that we not flee from the world, but try to engage the world and transform it. The challenge is to live in the world and to turn the mundane into the holy. So it's a way, you could say, it's a way to be spiritual and yet not not reject the world. I think that, that appeals to people. And another element is that it's, uh, it's an exotic form of, of religion, and yet it's strangely familiar because it's based on the Bible. It's based on the foundational text of all Western culture. Even though it says many radical things, it's always beginning and coming back to specific verses in, in the Bible. For example, the very first verse in, the, in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The Zohar reads that very differently. Not in the beginning God created, but with beginning the unnameable one created God. In other words, God turns out to be the object of the sentence rather than the subject. That sounds heretical. How, how can you say that God was created? But what the Zohar means is that there's really an infinite nature of God, known as Ein Sof, the infinite. And this infinity brought into being what we think of as God. In other words, our conception of God doesn't really stretch far enough. It doesn't encompass the ultimate reality of God. So for the Zohar, that you could say there's a God beyond God. That's actually a formulation that goes back to a great Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. But the Zohar really would be very comfortable with that wording. There's a God beyond God, and we should try to, we should try to get beyond our childish conceptions of God and be open to a, a more vast dimension. Don't you think that's the most difficult part of relating spiritually, no matter where a person's from, is the concept of God gets in the way of the infusion from the divine? Yes, yeah, certainly. Our ideas and our preconceptions get in the way, 
And the Zohar is struggling with that because the, the Zohar and the Kabbalah are, are very loyal to the tradition, and yet at the same time they're dissatisfied with the, with the rote formulas and the, the, the rote ways of, of, of doing things. They insist that you experience the divine power, as you said, the divine infusion. So they're reading the traditional texts, but constantly challenging us to to scratch the surface, to go beneath the surface, to penetrate the outer layer of meaning, and to discover a more experiential core. I want to speak more with you about this, but I want to clarify one thing at the beginning for listeners so you can be heard contextually. When you began this project to reconstruct Aramaic text based on original manuscripts, as you write, which you found in various libraries, mostly in Europe and on microfilm in Jerusalem. When you say original manuscripts, can you explain what that means? Because in many traditions, original transcripts have been changed. And so when you say original, how original, what level of purity, in your view, are you deriving this from? Right. It's a good question. It's important. Uh, Let's put it this way. The Zohar, what we call the Zohar, you know, there are uh, various editions of the Zohar and and translations into various languages, but the Zohar was written in Aramaic. It's an Aramaic book, a a vast book. It's usually printed in in four volumes. And that standard edition of the Zohar is what most people consult, people who can handle or who can control the Aramaic. When I began this project of translating the Zohar about... uh, about 14 years ago, I thought that I would simply begin by translating the first page of the Aramaic edition, the printed Aramaic Zohar. But I had access to various manuscripts, and I thought I would check those. And it turned out, after just a few weeks of work, I realized that the manuscripts preserved a better reading. When I speak of original manuscripts, I really mean portions of the Zohar, now, the Zohar was originally composed in 13th century Spain. We have no manuscripts that go back that far. But there are a few manuscripts of the 14th century, more in the 15th century, and many of the 16th century. So it's mostly manuscripts from the 15th century that I'm speaking about. These manuscripts were copied and recopied by scribes, and almost every scribe who copied the manuscript found something to add or change or correct Sometimes the scribes thought that they were improving the text. Sometimes they, they didn't understand the, the strange poetic language of the Zohar, and they tried to make it a little more regular or familiar. And when the Zohar was finally printed, it was based on uh, some of the more recent manuscripts. What I'm trying to do is go back to the earlier manuscripts in the 14th and 15th centuries and revise the printed text of the Zohar based on those earlier readings. On a typical page, I'll probably make uh, 20 or 30 changes to the Aramaic text based on these readings in the earlier manuscripts. They're very small changes, but they add up, and I end up uh, being able to offer the English reader a version of the Zohar that really has never been printed, but which is more authentic in the sense that it relies on the readings in these earlier manuscripts. Do you think that a lot of scribes have changed parts of this book because they wanted to not deal with paradox or ambiguity? 
Yeah, sometimes it's a matter of, uh, of a, a scribe maybe being frustrated with the ambiguous poetic language. Uh, the Zohar is written in a cryptic way. The Zohar doesn't make itself immediately accessible to the reader. And scribes who copied it sometimes tried to make it simpler, sometimes put in words of explanation. And those words of explanation, even though they could be helpful, they really uh, interfere with the poetic ambiguity. So I'm really trying to, to recover that, that original ambiguity in the text. But I accompany my translation with a very extensive commentary, and in that commentary I try to explain the symbolism, the sources that the Zohar is drawing on. But I want the, the translation of the text to be as close as possible to the author's original intention. There is no complete manuscript in the world of the Zohar, which is very interesting. In other words, that shows us that the Zohar was written bit by bit. It was written portion by portion, and only when it was finally printed in the 16th century, in other words, about 300 years after it was written, only in the 16th century were all those manuscripts put together, and we ended up with a, a Zohar on the, on the entire Torah, or almost the whole five books of Moses, the whole Torah. Originally, the manuscripts are Zohar on Genesis, and maybe a different manuscript, Zohar on Exodus a different one, Zohar and Leviticus. It was written portion by portion, circulated in those, in those small pieces or fragments, and that, that's important to, to realize. Your assistant lives in Australia, who is Israeli and who has been with you on this huge undertaking. Yeah, actually, I, I originally had a, a graduate student of mine, a wonderful fellow named Barry Mark, who did the manuscript research for the first several years. And then beginning, I guess it was in 2002, uh, an Israeli woman named Meirav Carmeli took over that task, and she's been working uh, with me on this for the last uh, eight or nine years. Actually, she just uh, moved with her husband from Australia back to Israel, and she'll be in Jerusalem for at least for the next three years uh, working, working on this. What she does, she does very painstaking work. She compares the printed text of the Zohar to, let's say, something like six or seven different manuscripts on a, on a particular page, and she prepares for me a detailed list of all the differences between the printed text and the wording in those manuscripts. And then I go over the lists that she's prepared, and I select which readings seem to me more original. There's certainly a subjective element that comes into that, but I I've learned to trust certain manuscripts, and I've learned to see what things uh, were added in over the centuries. Did you find when you began this that some of the other publishers of the Zohar were not happy about this? What do you mean? In other words, you said there's other editions of the Zohar uh -huh. that people are reading. This is a totally different type of undertaking. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not totally different. What makes it, I think what makes it... Uh, Unique is first of all that it's based on the manuscript, so I can I can I can really recover you know a more original text. We can get back closer to the to the mind of the of the author or the authors of the Zohar, and then the commentary is is extensive, and I try in the commentary to include traditional views and the insights of modern scholarship. One question, maybe this is part of what you are aiming at. One question that comes up is, when was the Zohar written? 
because the man who, who probably composed much of the Zohar was a Kabbalist who lived in Spain in the 13th century, a man named Moses de Leon, from Leon in northwestern Spain. And he never admitted that he wrote the Zohar. He claimed he was copying it from an ancient text that went back another thousand years. Here he is writing in the 13th century, but claiming that he's copying something that was written back in the 2nd century, 1,100 years earlier. And traditional Kabbalists accept that claim, and they insist that the Zohar really does go back to the 2nd century. What do you think? I think that it was basically composed in the 13th century, but Moses de Leon and colleagues of his, it probably, it certainly was written by more than one person, and they may have, they may have drawn on earlier texts. They certainly drew on earlier traditions. They may have had earlier writings that were incorporated into the Zohar, but it was at least edited, and I think to a large extent composed in Spain. I think that's very interesting, too. I don't think when people think of Kabbalah that they think that its roots are in Spain. Didn't in the end of the 12th century, the Kabbalah was also coming out of Provence? Yes. In a, in a sense, you could say Kabbalah, the, the first texts of Kabbalah are edited or studied in Provence. But there, too, it's hard to say that those are the first texts. There's an earlier tradition of, of Jewish mysticism that goes back to rabbinic times. And some of the people living in the land of Israel in the first few centuries of the Common Era were certainly involved in spiritual and mystical pursuit. And then the roots of those traditions certainly go back to the Bible itself. You have many lines in the Bible, you know, for example, in Psalm, um, with you is the source of light. In your light we see light. So certainly spiritual experience and direct experience of God is right there at the beginning of Jewish tradition in the Bible itself. It's a very gradual process in which those, those ideas and those experiences are fleshed out and developed into what we call Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah. So the Zohar is, you could say, the culmination of hundreds of years of Jewish mysticism. It became the Bible of Kabbalah, the major text of Kabbalah, because of its poetic power, because of its spiritual depth, because of its beauty, because of the, of the fictional, uh, the charming fictional framework of these rabbis who are wandering in the Galilee, and certainly also because of the erotic element. It's very important in Kabbalah, the erotic element within the divine and the appreciation of human sexuality. Talk about that. One of the great insights of the Kabbalah is that God is equally male and female. This is, you could say, a critique of traditional patriarchal religion. We all know that it, the Bible itself basically depicts God as, as a male figure, the king, the judge, the warrior. And Kabbalah insists that God is equally male and female. The feminine half of God is referred to as Shekhinah, literally the presence, the divine presence, the divine immanence in the world. But according to Kabbalah, there's a romance between Shekhinah and the Holy One, blessed be He. And their union is the whole agenda. Their union is the main purpose of religion, according to the Zohar. And very interesting, how does, how does this romance come to flower? How, is the, how, is, how does the divine couple come to unite? Only through human action. If human beings act virtuously on earth, you could say that serves as an aphrodisiac. 
for the divine couple. That's beautiful. Humans act wickedly or blindly, then that prevents the divine couple from uniting. So everything depends on what's called the arousal below. As the Zohar says, through an arousal below, there was an arousal above. Certainly the, the energy also moves from, from above to below, but that's standard religion, that everybody says. The, the innovation here is that what happens above depends on our action below. So it puts a great uh, weight, a great responsibility on, on human beings. There was a line in the essential Kabbalah, the heart of Jewish mysticism. You said, every human action here affects the divine realm. Can you explain that to the audience? Yeah, so really, the, the, that's exactly the point, that the, the, the divine qualities, what are called the ten sifirot, the ten aspects of God's being, two of those are, are the, the Holy One, Blessed Be He, and the Shekhinah. But the entire, the entire constellation of those ten forces cannot be united unless human beings uh, promote their union by acting in holy ways, by cultivating spirituality, by helping one's neighbor, by developing one's own spiritual awareness. You could say that's how we make God real. That's how we actualize God in the world. One of the most beautiful names for, for the Shekhinah, for the feminine divine presence, is the secret of the possible. So you might say God is, God is potentially in the world, but it's up to us to actualize that divine potential by leading ethical and spiritual lives. And that's another element that's unique to Kabbalah. Certainly you find it in other spiritual systems too, but the Kabbalah emphasizes very much that ethics is not separate from mysticism. In other words, the goal isn't to go off to a cave and meditate for 10 years. The goal is to help your neighbor. And by helping your neighbor... You make God's presence real in the world. Do you meditate? I meditate uh, briefly every day. Do you repeat the 22 names of God, letters of Hebrew? Uh, you know, there, there are many, many Kabbalistic techniques of meditation, some of them quite complex. I prefer just uh, simple, simple meditation on, on the breath, or sometimes I'll chant uh, a verse from Psalms or, or contemplate uh, one of the divine qualities. But I try to keep it as simple uh, as possible. Is it true that by decoding the Zohar, we have access then into decoding the Bible? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question, because there's a lot written on this, and I think a lot of it is, is pretty foolish. Uh, the, the Zohar certainly would say that every element in the Torah is significant, that every letter uh, can show us something. But the kind of books that have come out over the past 10 or 15 years uh, you know, on the Bible code, I think those are really ridiculous. I don't think one should uh, should waste time looking at the Bible in that way. You know, if you're convinced that that you're going to find something by counting uh, how many spaces and letters in each book, then you'll probably succeed in finding something. But that's because you you bring that uh, intention to the task. I think it's much more important to study the Torah. First, to begin with its literal meaning, and then to explore more deeply, more deeply looking for uh, imaginative readings and symbolic readings, but not to, uh, not to start counting letters and making predictions about what will happen 
in the political scene based on uh, numerical values. There was somewhere, and I don't remember where right now, but there was an article where you talked about the scroll of the Torah is written without vowels. And the consonants bear many meanings, and that you can understand it in countless ways. Yes, this is very interesting. Uh, you know, Hebrew is different than English in, in various ways. One of the ways it's different is that there are no letters that are, are vowels, or there, there are very few letters that are vowels. Basically, almost every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is a consonant. Now, of course, you need vowels in, in order to make words uh, audible, in order to, to sound out the words. So how does Hebrew create vowels? By putting little dots and lines above and below, sometimes inside of letters. In other words, the letters, the letters themselves are basically consonants, and the vowels are added by little dots and dashes that are placed above and below and within the letters. Now, traditionally, a Torah, a scroll of the Torah, the five books of Moses, has to be written without any vowels. It's only a stream of letters. Traditionally, there's a correct way to read it, and certainly most, uh, almost all printed Bibles have the consonants and the vowels. But the original scroll of the Torah, and the same scroll that's used in, all, in synagogues throughout the world, that's read uh, several times a week and at greater length every Sabbath, that scroll is not kosher. It's not proper if it has any vowels. It has to be only consonants. And there's a wonderful Kabbalistic interpretation of that law, and the interpretation is that it's written without vowels so that it can be interpreted, you might, you might say, that, so that it can be read in various ways. In other words, there is a traditional and correct way of reading the word, but you're allowed to read the word in different ways in order to, to derive additional meaning. And that was already a technique before the Kabbalah in rabbinic Judaism. The rabbis would expand the meaning of Torah by reading it in new ways, and the Kabbalah takes that over and develops it further, and it, you could say it celebrates the imagination. That's really what the Zohar is to a great extent. It's a celebration of, of imaginative reading of the Bible. Don't think that the Torah means just one thing. You can expand its meaning in many ways. This is really wonderful for today because you could say it's a critique of fundamentalism. The Zohar is really critical of, of reading the Bible in a fundamentalist way. It wants a creative and open-ended reading, and I think that's part of the secret of the appeal of the Zohar throughout the ages, and it's part of its, uh, of its appeal today, because people realize that you can't really, a religion can't really live if it stays entirely literal. You really, you really have to expand the meaning of the Torah in order to apply it to modern times. Take, for example, the line in, in the Bible, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right. That probably originally meant exactly what it says, that if I gouge out <laughs> someone's eye, my eye should be gouged out in return. But the rabbis refused to accept that interpretation, even though the Hebrew says that. The rabbis said, what does this mean, an eye for an eye? It means monetary compensation. It means that you should cover the person's healing, that you should cover any loss of income that he has, that you should pay for any shame or embarrassment that he has, the various categories. But the rabbis were willing to say, don't be content with the literal meaning. 
try to expand it and apply it to make the Torah a livable and living document. And the Zohar is very much in that tradition, just taking it a little further. That requires a willingness to purely receive and sit with what's coming to you and not have to know definitively. And that requires a certain muscle, a total willingness that I think a lot of readers aren't necessarily willing because they want to close in on things and have definitive answers. I think we're trained that way, unfortunately. That's why you're uniquely suited to do what you do. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting you say that because Kabbalah literally means receiving. I mentioned when we, when we began, yes. you could say part of the secret of Kabbalah is to be receptive, not to insist that you know it all, not to be content with your current level of, of knowledge or awareness, but to be open to new experiences, to be open to new ways of, of understanding the, the verses. The Zohar always uh, begins its passages by saying, Rabbi so-and-so opened, Rabbi Chia Patach. Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi Patach, Rabbi Yossi opened. So it could mean he opened his discussion, he opened his sermon, his teaching, but it also means he opened up the text, or maybe he opened up himself so that he could be more receptive. And that certainly is part of the magic of, of Kabbalah. In the essential Kabbalah, you talk about equanimity. And I think that equanimity is what a lot of people seek particularly today. I'm sure they have throughout the ages, but particularly today when we're bombarded with electronics and advertising and the hustle and the bustle and just the fast-paced electronic society. And I wondered if you had a few things to say about equanimity and what Kabbalah says about that. Yeah, this is a tricky thing because uh, on the one hand, you know, a spiritual discipline requires you to strive and to, to attain, to reach new heights, and to make decisions, to make judgments, you know, to act in this way and not that way, to spend your time doing something productive, to be studying Torah rather than, uh, you know, be out at the, at the pool hall. But on the other hand, some of the deepest teachings of Kabbalah insist that you should reach a point at which you are equanimous, in other words, where, you, where your state of mind is, is not flustered, where you're able to to just uh, be there as a receptive vessel. And it's paradoxical because I would say that uh, you have to strive and uh, strive to attain that place of, of not striving. In other words, you, you can't just begin by being lazy, by lying in bed and saying, well, it's all the same to me. doesn't matter if I get up or not. One has to get up. One has to strive. One has to work. One has to be involved in relationships and in, in productive lifestyle. But one of the great spiritual heights is to reach the place where you can just be, where you, where you don't have to try for another rung, but you can, you can open yourself and, and be receptive. And that, uh, that requires meditation. That requires really, you know, putting the world aside I think for a small amount of time, at least each day, and uh, opening oneself up to the to the flow of the universe. What has been your greatest challenge to date with this project, besides the enormity of it, the obvious enormity of it? I would say to to do justice to the to 
the beauty, to the lyrical beauty of the Zohar. Uh, I want to convey the power of the Zohar, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to ruin it by making it too simple. I think one of the nicest comments that anyone made after the first couple volumes came out, one reviewer said, the book is still in Aramaic. <laughs> That's great. Now, it sounds strange because I was putting it in English, but I think, I hope what he meant was that I was able to convey some of the of the raw power of the original. And which I, I want the translation itself to be to be somewhat difficult, but then in the commentary to explain it to the reader. And uh, I would say that's one of the great challenges, to find the balance between, you know, writing something in English that will make sense in terms of the translation itself, and yet not dumbing it down, not ruining the, the, the original ambiguity of the, of the poetic Aramaic. I think the modern-day Kabbalah merchandising, if you will, could benefit highly from bringing in your books, the Pritzker edition of the Zohar. And I wonder if you think it will happen, that they will incorporate the work you've done as the rarefied terrain that the Zohar really comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenging book. You know, the, I, I've done popular books on Kabbalah. You mentioned the essential Kabbalah and another God and the Big Bang. But in this, the Zohar Pritzker edition, I want to present the Zohar, you know, in all its original beauty and difficulty. And it's a challenging book. I would say that, you know, of the many people who get attracted to Kabbalah, if a small percentage of them then really, you know, delve deeply into the Zohar using my translation, that would be great. It's not something that uh, I think everyone should read. You know, uh, for some people it just would be too difficult. But uh, you can dip into the book and, and get something out of it. It's really like jumping into the ocean. So it's a vast uh, undertaking, and, and one should begin uh, a little bit at a time. The original criteria to study Kabbalah is that you had to be 40 years old. I know some said you could be younger, but I guess the tradition was 40 years old. You had to have prior rabbinic learning and been married and be emotionally and mentally stable. I was wondering if you still agree with that. Is that still in place, or has anything changed? Yeah, I mean, as you indicated, you know, some Kabbalists, actually one great Kabbalist, Moses Cordovero, says uh, you should be 20, so 20 rather than 40. I think the point is that, that one, should, one should have reached some level of, of maturity, uh, and that's, that's really because, that's because of the power of the material. You know, but this is really true of all mysticism. When you study mysticism, you're really delving very deeply into the nature of the self. And if you, if you undo the normal understanding of the self prematurely, you could be left, uh, you know, falling into madness. I think there's a very fine line between mystical awareness and madness because both of them really question the normal understanding of self. So if you're involved in spiritual quest, it's important to, to have certain safeguards to begin with a teacher or a companion, to have reached some level of maturity, to have some you know, emotional stability, to be involved in, in a relationship with another person. I, w I wouldn't say that's absolutely necessary, but it certainly is, is helpful. 
In terms of Kabbalah, the, the requirement of, of having already studied for years and years, I don't think it's so important exactly how many years, but it is important to have some basic knowledge of earlier stages of the Jewish tradition. If you open up the Zohar and start reading it, it'll be very, very confusing if you haven't read some of the Bible or some of the, of the rabbinic commentaries on the Bible. I would say what you really need to make sense of the Zohar is some some familiarity with the five books of Moses and some appreciation of what's called Midrash, the rabbinic interpretations of the Bible. Because then you can see how the Zohar builds on those earlier stages. And that's, how, that's what I would say, that, that it's, it's not so much that the book you know, is forbidden. I mean, now you can go into a bookstore and, and find anything. But to make sense of it and to, to start out on a mystical journey, you know, without uh, to, to try to avoid the dangers, to try to safeguard yourself against the dangers, it makes sense to begin with some basic learning and to have reached a certain level of maturity and to uh, also be involved in the world, not to leave the world behind. As I said before, Kabbalah insists that you integrate the material and the spiritual. So I think it's good to, you know, to have, uh, to have work, to have a job, to have your feet on the ground, and then to delve into Kabbalah uh, as a kind of dirt. You have had probably many Jewish philosophers who have impacted your life and your work. And I was wondering about Moses, how do I pronounce his last name, Mamondes? Moses Maimonides. Uh, Maimonides. A very interesting figure. He's known as the Rambam in Hebrew, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Moses the son of Maimon, or Moses Maimonides. He was probably the greatest, certainly the greatest Jewish philosopher of the Middle Ages. He died right before, uh, as the Kabbalah was just just beginning to emerge in, in Europe. He died in the year 1204. In other words, and the Zohar was composed probably mostly in the 1270s or 1280s. So the Zohar was not there when, when Maimonides lived, but Maimonides' teaching was very important for the Kabbalah. Now, sometimes people make the simplistic dichotomy between Moses Maimonides, the great rationalist, and then the Kabbalists, who are all mystics, as if they had nothing to do with one another. But really, that's not the case. Maimonides was such a towering figure, not only in philosophy, but in rabbinic law and in Jewish tradition, that really everyone who knew of him uh, studied him. And all the Kabbalists, you could say, grew up studying Maimonides. Maimonides, even though he's considered a rationalist, also had a very strong contemplative side, and the Kabbalists learned something from that as well. And in fact, one of the main insights of the Kabbalah, that God is Ein Sof, the infinite, that we should try to see beyond the childish images of God, that's very much part of Maimonides' agenda. He wants to see God in a, in a, more, a more sophisticated way, in a more abstract way, not to be fooled by the uh, anthropomorphic descriptions, the descriptions of God as if he's in human form. And the Kabbalah, I would say the Kabbalah accepts that element of Maimonides' thought in terms of the ultimate reality of God. Ultimately, God is beyond any physical description. So that view of Maimonides about the nature of God is shared by the Kabbalists 
in terms of the ultimate reality of God, Ein Sof. Where the Kabbalists differ with Maimonides is that they're not opposed to descriptions of God in human form, as long as we realize that those are at a, at a lower stage. There's an ultimate reality of God, Ein Sof, the infinite, and then God can be described uh, in very human ways. So some of what the Kabbalah said about God, for example, the romance within God, the male and female aspects of God, that would make Maimonides turn over in his grave, even though he would be fully comfortable with what the Zohar says about Ein Sof, the ultimate reality of God. So this is really an evolution. It's a big evolution from the Torah as we know it. Yes, it's really good you use that word, because I would say that that's part of what Kabbalah is saying, that we should allow God to evolve, that we should recognize that God evolves and that our understanding of God evolves. We shouldn't be trapped in, in the original or the earlier view of God. We shouldn't reject it, but we should see that, it, that God can unfold and the Torah can unfold. The Torah can unfold in meaning. And we should be part of that unfolding and, and celebrate the fact that religion is not limited to any one formulation. On page 149 of the Essential Kabbalah, you say, You can mend the cosmos by anything you do, even eating. Do not imagine that God wants you to eat for mere pleasure or to fill your belly. No, the purpose is mending. Talk about that. Yes, you know, I should say, first of all, and anything you're quoting from the Essential Kabbalah uh, these are original texts of Kabbalah that I've translated. Okay, very good. Zohar and from other, from other writings. At the back of the book, I have small comments about them, but the passages themselves are not my, my thoughts. They're my translations of Kabbalistic texts. Very good. Thank so the you. one that you're referring to is uh, very interesting. It really brings us to the topic of tikkun, which I translate there as mending. You could translate it repair or fixing or perfection. This was taught by the great uh, Jewish mystic Isaac Luria, who lived in the Galilean town of Safed about 300 years after the Zohar in the 16th century. And he taught, uh, basically he had a very interesting approach to, to God and creation. What he said was, let's imagine that originally there was only God. All that existed was God before the world came into being. So Luria asks, if everything was God, how can there be a world at all? How can there be anything but God now? Why would God change from being everything to limiting himself? And Luria says, in fact, God had to withdraw. God had to withdraw himself from himself. As it were, God is making a, a small gap within this ocean of divinity. God pulls back in every direction and creates a small hole in the middle of God, which is now empty of God. And within <laughs> that small gap, that is where God creates the world. That's how the world comes into existence. So the divine energy pours into that gap and begins creation, but the power of the divine is too much for the world to hold, and the world shatters. According to Luria, creation begins, you could say, with a kind of catastrophe. The world shatters because it can't handle the power of the divine energy, and that's why we live in a broken world. But that's not the end of the story. That just sets the stage for tikkun, for mending or repair. It's our task to repair the world. 
we should really restore the world to God by turning the mundane or the secular into the holy. How do we do that? By, by following the Torah, by living holy lives. If we live in holy and spiritual and ethical ways, then we can raise the sparks. That's the image that Luria uses. The divine sparks within all of material existence. You could almost think of it uh, like energy and matter, as a physicist might describe it. All material existence is really permeated with, with energy. From a spiritual perspective, what we should do is to, to focus on those sparks and through becoming aware of the divine potential in the world and through acting on that awareness, we can raise the sparks back to God. We can transform the material to the spiritual. In that particular passage, Luria talks about doing it through the act of eating. So eating isn't just a gluttonous experience. It's not just, you know, satisfying your, your hunger. It's also an opportunity to to do something with that energy. And the act of eating and the result of eating can can become holy. There's another piece that says, God is dynamic becoming and remains incomplete. God needs us. That is really a different kind of context for relating to God, that God needs us. Why? Yes, that's really one of the radical notions of Kabbalah. I would say, you know, if, if listeners want to... Uh, just a, a quick summary of Kabbalah. I would say there are three major insights of Kabbalah. One is that God is ultimately infinite. God is insof. We shouldn't think of God as Father in Heaven. We should, we should outgrow those childish notions of God and realize that ultimately God is the infinite energy. The second insight is that if we're going to describe God, if we're going to use traditional images, we should balance the masculine with the feminine. We should realize that God is equally male and female, although ultimately beyond both genders. And the third insight is just what you said now, God needs us. This is called in Hebrew, Tzorech Gavoah, the, the need on high, that, that God actually is in need of us. And that sounds very strange. How can God need us? Isn't God perfect? According to Kabbalah, God is somehow incomplete without our active participation. Unless we're involved in the world, unless we try to, to improve the world, to improve ourselves, to improve our relationships, to help society grow and develop, unless we do that, we're leaving God incomplete. Because in that sense, God needs us to be actualized in the world. As I mentioned before, God is the secret of the possible, and without our help, that potential can never be fully realized. It's a very deep context for relating to what we're referring to as God, the divine, the infinite. Right. It really makes it more of a partnership. It's not, you know, this perfect God, and here I am, this incomplete and sinful creature. It's really that, that we're in this together. God is challenging us to live up to a certain ideal, and God needs our awareness in order to be fully actualized himself. It's a very exciting theology. I am that I am. <laughs> yes, in, in a way, even though, even though Kabbalah is very new and radical, it's really kind of spelling out that name of God, which God reveals to Moses at the burning bush, 
I am who I am, or I, w- I will be who I will be. Right there, God is saying, don't fit me into a box. Don't define me in any one way. God is unfolding being, and we have to unfold along with him and her. It also says in the book that evil must be encountered, not evaded. That is brilliant. Talk about that. Yes, this is a very radical notion of Kabbalah, and some aroused a good deal of opposition, because really you have you know different different approaches to evil in, in the tradition, in all religious traditions. Within Judaism, you would think the more normal approach is to fight evil, to uproot evil, to, to rid the world of evil. And if, it, if, you, if, if lustful thoughts or if evil thoughts come to you, you should avoid them, you should flee from them. I mean, you shouldn't encounter them, because if you encounter them, if you, if you engage them, you might give in to them. But the Kabbalah says that really, if you, if you just flee from evil, you'll never escape it. Because evil temptation, uh, temptation is just too potent to leave you alone. You can't really avoid temptation constantly. And therefore, the Kabbalah says you have to actually engage with temptation, not give in to it, not surrender to it, but somehow, you, could, you might say, transmute it. Take that raw elemental power of passion, let's say, and transform that, let that fuel you. Let the passion fuel you. Don't, you know, don't flee from the, from the power of the temptation, but engage it and redirect it, rechannel it. And that's a very bold approach. It's certainly a dangerous one. But the Kabbalah sees that as a more holistic and ultimately more fulfilling approach. Evil reminds me of a Gordian knot in that the more you try to get away from it, you get pulled further in. And that's what it's saying, right? Right. Right. There's a couple more pieces I want to talk to you about that says, if you are deserving, you will understand the mystery of God on your own. What does that mean? <laughs> yes, you know, this takes us to the question of do you need a teacher? <laughs> the value of, of teaching versus uh, personal exploration. Yes. People often ask me, you know, who should I study with? I get a phone call from someone in Virginia, say, do you know somebody here I can study with? And certainly it is, it's useful to have a teacher and to study with someone, at least to begin with. But I think a lot of, uh, a lot of what spirituality means is to to confront yourself, you know, without, without someone else. It's useful to have a guide, you know, we talked before about the dangers of mystical search, and it's useful to have a companion or a guide, but ultimately you really have to explore on your own. And I think uh, spiritual insight is most, is most successful when it involves uh, a good amount of, of private introspection of, you know, going off on, on one's own, walking, meditating, sitting, and not always trying to, to fill the silence. You know, learning how to be comfortable with silence. The beautiful line in the Psalms, Lecha dumiya tihila, to you, silence is praise. It's very puzzling. What does that mean, to you, silence is praise? 
but somehow there's a power in silence. And if we always turn on the radio or, you know, call up a friend or check online what's happening, we can, we can lose that uh, great invitation to dwell in silence. So I think it's, I think it's wonderful uh, mystical technique, a wonderful spiritual discipline to, to cultivate an appreciation of, of silence and, alo- and aloneness. Right? There's a difference between aloneness and loneliness. Right. Nobody wants loneliness, but aloneness can be very, very rich and very rewarding experience, and that's part of what's involved in, in spiritual discovery. The ecstatic Kabbalah is different, right, than the kind of Kabbalah you're describing. Now, I wouldn't draw a sharp distinction. I mean, there's okay. the whole realm of, of Kabbalah. In Hebrew, it's called Kabbalah Nevuit, prophetic Kabbalah, and some people now call that ecstatic Kabbalah. What that really means is techniques of meditation that will, you know, take you to another state, another state of mind. I've been involved mostly in working on the Zohar, which is, which is you know, an interpretation of the Torah, but I would say it's a kind of uh, study which has an ecstatic element. In other words, the author of the Zohar, the author of the authors of the Zohar, how did they, how did they create what they created? They didn't just sit down and you know begin writing. They had certain experiences. You could say that they meditated on the Bible itself. Maybe they used the text of the Bible as a technique of meditation, and then they had some breakthrough and some insight. But their experience of study had an ecstatic element as well. But there is a whole field of Kabbalah known as, as ecstatic Kabbalah. It's often associated with the name of Abraham Abu Lafia. And he developed certain techniques of meditation. These are, these are described, I talk about them a little bit in the Essential Kabbalah. Right. There's another book called uh, Meditation and Kabbalah by Aryeh Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N. And that has a lot of material on meditative techniques, including what, what, what you've been calling ecstatic, ecstatic Kabbalah. And wasn't Abraham influenced by Sufism and yoga? He was a very interesting Kabbalist. He's also in the 13th century. It was a very, very uh, fruitful century. And uh, Abu Lafio traveled widely, was open to other religious traditions. He may well have encountered uh, certain breathing techniques that may have come from yoga. He almost certainly had contact with Sufis, and he tried to... Uh, to learn from those traditions and, and enrich his Jewish practice and his Jewish knowledge by being open to, to other faiths. This got him in trouble with, you know, certain close-minded people, and he had a very rough time. He also began to think of himself as the Messiah, which can get you into trouble. But uh, Abu Lafia was a very profound Kabbalist, and some of, some of his writings are very, very moving. How do you feel about corporeality? Physical... In fact, explain it, corporeality. Yeah, I mean, you know... How God feels and acts. ...material and the spiritual. So, you know, some religious traditions say that you have to deny yourself all physical pleasure in order to, to find God. If you're having a good time, then you're not doing something religious. That kind of dichotomy you find in many traditions, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, Eastern, Western. What's wonderful about the Kabbalah is that it, it says... It says, really, you should try to develop techniques for finding God within the physical realm, so that physical pleasures, eating, 
drinking, sexuality, those can actually become avenues for, for religious experience. And here, you know, we're, on, we're treading on dangerous ground here, too, because you can easily go overboard and justify your own greed or, or lust and say that you're trying to find God. But Kabbalah really believes that, that you serve God through and in the body. There's a beautiful line in the Bible, Nibisari Echaze Eloha, in the book of Job. From my flesh I will see God. It's not clear what it means in the original context, but it's taken to mean that you should try to develop ways of experiencing God through the physical realm, not by avoiding or denying yourself the physical, but to turn the, the mundane into the holy. This is not an invention of the Kabbalah. You can find this. There's a wonderful appreciation of, of the physical world in the Bible. And then in rabbinic, you know, for example, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In, in the book of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, and the rabbis of the Talmud develop a whole series of brachot, of blessings, in which one is supposed to realize the beauty of the world and appreciate the the goodness of the world. One scholar has called this normal mysticism. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, <laughs> but that really describes what rabbinic Judaism is trying to create. Normal mysticism, in other words, make the everyday a series of opportunities of appreciating God. Before you eat something, say a blessing. Blessed are you, O God, who brought this fruit into being, who creates the fruit of the earth, who creates the fruit of the ground who brings forth bread from the earth. So if you, can, if you can involve yourself in the world, but not lose sight of the transcendent aspect of reality, that, I think, is really the goal of, of, of Judaism and of Kabbalah. That was beautifully put. Is the correct word, Beshert? Beshert, that this project would be funded by the Pritzker Foundation. What a huge mammoth project. And you have six editions done already? Um, of the volumes of the Zohar, I've finished uh, six volumes, and I hope to complete three more. And there are two people, who will, two people who I've given some training to who will work on volumes 10 through 12. So it'll be 12 volumes in all when it's complete. Right now it's about halfway done. Given your past experience of the six volumes, how long do you think the other ones will take? Uh, I hope to complete my work, uh, I would say, in the next uh, in the next four or five years. Wow. And that's every day you're doing this, right? Yeah, I work uh, six days a week. About I, I do some studying related to Zohar, but I, it's hard for me to take a day off from the work. I, I do take some breaks, but uh, it's really drawn me in, and, and it's very, even though it's very demanding, it's very exciting and very fulfilling. Even after, I've been doing it for... Uh, it's for 13 years now, I did this project, but uh, I still find it uh, challenging and exciting. It's definitely alive, and it obviously talks to you. <laughs> <laughs> it talks to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so honored that you're here, and I want to know if there's anything else you'd like to say. I would just encourage people to uh, to start to start studying it, not to be, you know, daunted by the by the complexity of the Kabbalah, but to see it as, uh, 
as something that that anyone can delve into as long as one approaches it with with some care. And uh, I want to express my gratitude to uh, to Margot Pritzker of the Pritzker family. The whole project began really because she was studying with a rabbi, a rabbi in Chicago named Yechiel Pupko. And Margot Pritzker and Rabbi Yechiel Pupko began studying the Zohar using an older English translation. They felt that it wasn't adequate, and they they wanted a new, a new translation so that they could study. So the whole project came out of their desire to study Torah, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The Pritzker Foundation led me to Rabbi Pupko, who led me to you. I also want to thank them. And I'd like to close with one other piece in the essential Kabbalah, the heart of Jewish mysticism, when you wrote about wisdom, that wisdom we receive from God, and our job is to increase and to refine it. And the other part of our job is to teach others the wisdom God poured down on us. And I just really want to thank you, Daniel Matt, for your the glorious work that you're in and the poise in which you present what you're doing and what your calling is. And I am sure that God is shining down on you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Daniel Matt, the author of the translation and commentary of the Pritzker edition of the Zohar. The Zohar, the Book of Enlightenment, Zohar Annotated and Explained, God and the Big Bang, Discovering Harmony Between Science and Spirituality, and the Essential Kabbalah, the Heart of Jewish Mysticism. Thanks so much, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you very much.